Uh, and it's interesting too because I'm using the word interesting a lot. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, there's a school named after him not that, not that far from here. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's famous for a lot of stuff. Um, considered one of the founding fathers of our republic, um, signatory of just about every important document at the beginning of our country that we ever had. Uh, but one of the more infamous things that Thomas Jefferson is famous for is that Thomas Jefferson uh, did not think that the Bible was in its best form. Um, Thomas Jefferson is famous for editing his Bible. He would remove parts of it that he did not think needed to be there. And when I say he would remove part of it, I mean he would literally mark it out or cut it out and say that it did not need to be in there. So Jefferson's Bible, it, depending on what circles you run in, is kind of a, kind of a derogatory phrase. Um, because it, it means someone has decided what should go and what should not. Uh, and we look at that and we kind of cover our mouth and go, oh my goodness, how, how dare Thomas Jefferson do that? But the reality is there's some very real temptations to do that, aren't there? Yeah, there are. Yes, there are. Don't, don't, anybody, the Bible is comforting, is it not? Most of the time. But then the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you when you're reading it someday and He goes, hey, I got something I need to talk to you about. Ever experienced that? Where God says, hey, we need to have some one-on-one time and we've got some stuff that we need to discuss. That There's plenty of encouraging stuff in the Bible, but y'all, the, the Bible is challenging too. And when you run across part of it that challenges you, uh, you've got a choice. You can either go Thomas Jefferson on it and go get a pair of, of safety scissors and decide to make your Bible a little bit more, you know, you-friendly... Or you can do what God intended you to do with it, which is to look in His Word and say, if there's ever a discrepancy between you and me, it's got to be you who changes, not me. God's perfect, or any of us. No, but because of that, we don't, admitting that we're not perfect is not always our strong suit. The Bible is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book because it is the Word of God. It is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, eternal Word of God. It's not going to change. Uh, we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. That's why your pastor preaches the way he does. That When I pick a book, uh, unless something happens in the life of our church or God through the person of the Holy Spirit impresses on me that there's something else I need to talk about that particular Sunday. When I start a book, I'm going to go through it. And I'm going to go through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse because every single word in this book matters. I don't want to skip it. I don't want to dodge it. Even when it's not comfortable. Just because something is not comfortable does not mean that God didn't say it. So if he says it, it matters, right, church? We don't get to cut it out. We don't get to pretend like it's not there. Uh, so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 11 this morning, and look at the Apostle John having to come to grips with the, the reality that the Word of God is certainly not always comfortable. In fact, it, it's bittersweet. Uh, it's bittersweet. That's actually the way that, that Scripture itself describes it. Uh, so if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, um, we're going to read Revelation chapter 10, 
verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Father, I pray that when we hear your word this morning, when we contemplate it, when we see it the rest of the week and then next week and for the rest of our lives, we would resist the satanic urge to cut out or add to what you have said. Help us to take seriously what you said and to assimilate what you have said to become part of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So the bittersweet truth. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, it's, it's odd to talk about the Bible as being bittersweet because for Christians, <coughs> when Jesus, I mean, this is not on your handout, but when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted and Satan said, if you're really the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus responded and said, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that what? Proceeds from the mouth of God. That For Christians, this is nourishing. Right? That's why I don't understand when Christians don't interact with their Bible on any day other than Sunday and Wednesday. If you want to see how ridiculous that is for the health of your, your spiritual life, consider only eating food on Wednesdays and Sundays. Are any of y'all willing to only eat two days of the week? No? Why? Would that hurt you? Yes. Well, oh my gosh, somebody said it would probably help us. Um, maybe, maybe some of us for a little bit. I'd say, what, what my late mid-year resolution is to get rid of a few inches right here. Because um, Jimmy Williams, if y'all were here at my anniversary dinner last week, he's, he's trying to be a prophet. He said, I see Josh in the future. He's going to be a little fat preacher. And I'm trying, to, I'm, trying to put, I'm trying to put him under Deuteronomy and say, false prophet, false prophet. Um, no, after a while, whether or not it helps you to begin with, after a while it's going to come back and it's going to bite you. Isn't it? That you, can, you can't go without food that long. So it's weird for us to talk about the Bible and say this is, this is bittersweet. That we think of it as food, but the reality is, if you've been walking with the Lord long enough and you stay faithful to His Word in terms of saying what it says, eventually you're going to get a little bit of the bitter too. And I want us to look at, at three... I don't even know how to describe it. Three intentions of God regarding His Word today. And the first is that God intends us to assimilate all of His Word. Look at verse 8. Uh, John writes, then the verse which I heard from heaven spoke to me again. So this, this voice that John hears from heaven, uh, last week, you know, we're in between the, the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Uh, the seventh trumpet, if you recall, this is the end of, a, of a, the second set of judgments in the book of Revelation. Uh, that it is one of the three woes that after the fourth trumpet blew, an angel actually pronounces, you know, woe on the earth 
for the next three trumpets that are about to blow. That the, the tenor of the judgments of God is increasing. Uh, that it's getting more and more severe as time goes by. And there is a gap <coughs> between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And there's a very stern warning that an angel gives in, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. And it's that this gigantic, authoritative angel with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, symbolizing this the announcement that he's about to make, is going to cover the whole earth. There's nobody that's accepted. It's that, that this, is, this is covering of all of humanity. That there's not going to be any more delay in the judgments of God. That the increasing destructiveness of these judgments is not going to be held back. Uh, so you say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem like the God I know. Our God I know is merciful. Absolutely, the God you know is merciful. This is not happening right now, is it? This current second, these judgments are not occurring in this world, are they? Okay, that's the mercy of God. Okay, the mercy of God is right now. Don't wait until the trumpets start blowing to ask for it. Come look for it now. So this angel gives a warning that it's going to not be delayed. And this whole time John has seen him, he's holding this little tiny book in his hand. And if you were here last week, you heard me say, hey, I'm not going to talk to you much about this book because we're going to talk about this book all week next week. Now, this book specifically, God tells John, this is the same voice that he heard at the beginning of chapter 10, tells him to go and take the little book which is in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Now, immediately previously, John had heard the voices of seven thunders and you expect that he's going to write it down, but God says, no, those words are forbidden for you to write. You don't get to write those. But now, whatever this word in this book is, he's not commanded to just see it. But he's commanded to go and take it from the angel. God intended for John to take and share the words of this little book. But notice that I said God intended him to take it. It was available. God did not take this word and just kind of stick it in John's head download style. You know, you ever use a computer and you know, the down, when you download something, it's, it's out there. In the internet, it's on some computer somewhere across the world, but you want it on the computer in your house, so you click the little download button and it goes from there to being inside your computer through the magic of the internet. You know, God didn't just download this word into John's mind. He said, this angel has got it. You need to go and take it. There's an active component to John getting this word from God. It's available to him. Are you starting to see where this is coming from? The book is available to him. But God's not just going to take it and stick it in it. That there's got to be an active pursuit of this book. Okay? So, John hears God and he goes to the angel and says, Give me the little book. And John obeys him. He goes to the angel and says, Give me the book. God said... Come take it from you. So the angel gives it to him, but he doesn't just give it to him without a warning. Which, by the way, this thing ought to come with a warning on it. It really should. It ought to come with a warning on it. <coughs> the angel says to him, take it and read it. Is that what he said? No. He didn't just say take it. He didn't just say take it and read it. He said take it and eat it. Finish the phrase. You are what you 
Yes, you are. Unfortunately for me, I'm either a McFlurry or a 10-piece Chicken McNugget or a donut from Engels or something like that because I'm, this is why Jimmy's going to be right, y'all. Um, that what you eat, you begin to reflect. It becomes part of you. He doesn't just say take the book. He doesn't just say read the book. He says eat the book. If God had just said take it, that would be possession. How many of you... This should be an obvious question. Other than the Bible you have right now, I'm going to assume everybody here has some form of the Bible in front of you. Either it's a pew Bible or it's the Bible you bought from home, brought from home, but you probably brought one with you. How many of you, other than the Bible that you brought with you, you've got another one at your house somewhere? How many of you have more than one at your house somewhere? Two? Three? You're just going to keep your hand up because you don't know how many you have? There's a lot of them. you got a lot of them. Okay, so possession of the Word of God is obviously not a problem. Okay, how many of you, in addition to the Bibles that you have at home that you can hold in your hand, have some form of internet connectivity? So there's about 13 million more in any translation you want. BibleGateway.com. It's owned by Thomas Nelson, I think. I think it's owned by Thomas Nelson. You can pull down 120-something English translations of the Bible. It's absurd. And not only can you do that, you can compare the two against each other. And then if you want to see it in another language, you can pull it up in another language there. That, y'all, we possess this book. We've got it. But if you were to turn on the news, you wouldn't know that this thing was even in the world just about half the time. Possession isn't the be-all and end-all. The point of possessing something is to actually know it, right? So you would read it. But the angel didn't say take it and read it. He's not concerned just with information acquisition. You know, I went, it is, y'all, there are three Saturdays left in 2019 without college football. Did you know that? <laughs> there are, as of today, 26 days. I'm counting. I'm looking forward to it. I went to the University of Georgia, and for some reason, I decided to take a religion class there. Uh, now, I went to seminary afterward where folks actually love Jesus. But I took some religion classes at UGA where, when I say folks, I mean professors. Because religion professors at the University of Georgia, as intelligent as they are, they don't, the majority of them, I don't want to paint with an overly broad brush. The majority of them are purely academics of the biblical text. Okay, They're not teaching it for any real spiritual reason. They're teaching it for some vague reason of the impact it's had on world culture and its historical nature as a text and some, something like that. I wanted to see what it was going to be like in there, so I decided to take this class. Y'all, I had a professor when I was at UGA whose name I will not drop that I'm, I love him. I do. He, he was an Old Testament professor. And this kid in the back of the class one day 
he's reading an NIV. Nothing wrong with the NIV if you understand how you went from the original text of Scripture over to the NIV. If you understand how we got from point A to point B, that's fine. If you, if you have an NIV please, and you're reading it, please keep reading it. Keep using it. But this kid reads an NIV in the back, and it, the professor says something up front, and he says, well, professor, that's not what it says. You see, I'm reading my Bible. The professor said, what are you reading? He said, well, I'm reading, I'm reading the Bible. He said, no, what translation are you reading? He said, I'm reading the New International Version. He said, no, 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 no. That's not what it says. And the kid says, well, what are you reading? What, what translation are you reading? And the professor turned around his Hebrew Bible and said, I'm not. He was reading it in Hebrew and translating it into English as he read it. This guy knew the Bible like the back of his hand. And this same kid later found out that just because this was an Old Testament class, he also didn't need to challenge this professor on the New Testament because this guy also knew the New Testament. He was not a Christian. But I guarantee you, as far as information was concerned, he knew the Bible better than the majority of people on that campus. Just having information does not itself bring life change. Just having information does not make you a Christian. Possessing this book, not so much the ultimate goal, though it's good, Understanding the information in this book, excellent. Still not the end goal. What God wants is assimilation. What God wants is for you to have it, to read it, and to eat it. For it to become, not physically chomp this up. And remember, this is a vision, okay? But to take it and consume it. To make it part of you. That it's not something that exists outside of you anymore. It becomes part of your very being. And this book was going to be pleasant when he began to take it in. But once it gets down in his stomach, it's going to become bitter. Now, wait just a minute. That book doesn't seem bitter to me. Yes, but it has before. When God convicts you of sin... When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, what does He generally use to do it? More times than not. He uses your Bible, doesn't He? Because you wouldn't... You wouldn't he, he's going to take what's in Scripture and He's going to apply it to your heart and He's going to say, hey, this Scripture is about you right now. And when He convicts you, where do you feel it? Physically, where do you feel it? You get a knot in your stomach, don't you? It's miserable, isn't it? Have you ever had the Holy Spirit just eat your lunch? See, we don't like to talk about that. We like to talk about the sweetness. The, the, the pleasurability of the Word when you, when you first put it in your mouth, when you take it in. When you read... Uh, there, there's a sweetness when you hear that the blood of Jesus Christ has reconciled me to God, but then you sit down and you... You contemplate that and you roll that over and you savor it, but then you remember, wait a minute, his blood reconciled me, which meant he had to die. My sin brought about his death. That's bitter, isn't it? That hurts. 
And there are plenty other ways that it hurts. And, and you can avoid that hurt. There's a way to avoid that hurt. But not and assimilate all of this. The way to avoid the hurt is to read Thomas Jefferson's Bible. You cut out the parts that hurt you. You cut out the parts that sting. If you're a preacher, you avoid the sermons that you don't want to preach. You don't preach on topics that might make your people angry. Y'all, do you know this has nothing to do with you? Do you know that, that there are passages that it scares the heebie-jeebies out of your preacher to preach? Do you think three or four weeks ago I wanted to preach on demons? I didn't wake up at the beginning of the week and go, I think we're going to talk about demons this week. That seems fun. What about hell? I don't like preaching about hell. Man, if I could preach on grace and the goodness of Jesus every single Sunday, just that. Now, I do. I try and present the gospel every single Sunday because he's in every single text. But y'all, every single text is not always sweet. Sometimes it's bitter. And you don't get to take the one and not the other. Now, if you go back, this is not all on your handout, but the last few verses are. <clears throat> if you go back to the book of John, and you go to chapter 6. And this is shortly after Jesus calling Himself the bread from heaven. If you go to John chapter 6, at the very end of the chapter... Jesus says in verse 53, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For My flesh is food indeed, and My blood is drink indeed. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me, and I in him. As the living Father sent Me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on Me will live because of Me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not your fathers ate, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Have you ever read your Bible and came away saying, This is a hard saying? How in the world am I supposed to understand this? And more often than not, it's not because we don't understand what it's saying. It's because we don't understand what we're supposed to do with it. But this is a difficult passage even to understand. In verse 61, when Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples complained about this, He said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where He was before? It's the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. And He said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it's been granted Him by the Father. From that time, this is on your handout, from that time many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Are my words too hard for you? Are you not willing to go with Me when... This might be a little bit offensive to your tender sensibilities. 
Are you not willing to replace your view of the world with mine? Are you not willing to accept my understanding of truth over yours? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. That you can leave this, but whatever words you replace it with, they're not the words of life. Whatever you're eating... Now, we all know that Jesus did not mean literally eat His flesh and drink His blood. He did not. I don't care what theological knots you try and twist that into. Jesus was a Jew and He would have been cut off from the covenant for eating either flesh or blood, much less be called a good teacher for commanding other people to do so. He didn't mean literally His flesh and blood, but Jesus is the Word made what? Flesh. If you eat this, if you drink this, if you soak it in, if you assimilate this, if you let it become part of you, Jesus says there is life in these words. Listen to them. Pay attention to them. When they offer you grace, take it. When they offer you mercy, take it. When they tell you of a God who loved you enough to die for you, take that. Run with that. Believe that. Trust that. But if it offends you and you decide to cut it out or act like it's not there, Luke 9.26, Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and with the holy angels. Or end of the holy angels. Jesus said very clearly, if you're ashamed of me or my words, then I'm going to be ashamed of you. That God wants us to assimilate all of His Word. Not parts of it. All of it. God intends you to assimilate all of His Word. Second, God intends us to enjoy slash endure all of His Word. Say, well, Josh, that's not very good grammar. No, but it's very good theology. That God intends us to enjoy or endure all of His Word. Look at verse 10. So John does what the angel says to do. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. Let me flip back to Revelation here. I turned it. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. So true, correct? This is what the angel said. He said, when you take it and you eat it, it's going to be as sweet as honey in your mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Y'all, how in the world can we see all of Jesus' warnings about the treatment we're going to receive for following Him and still feel a shock when we experience it? Now, I say this knowing that we live in the United States of America and the persecution, quote-unquote, that we receive for being Christians is nothing compared to the, per- to the persecution that, that Christians elsewhere receive. But y'all, because I believe in the Bible, it's coming. One day it will come. I mean, for some people, it's already here. They're getting run out of business, sued out of business. Frankly, y'all, I'm surprised that one of the two shootings this weekend wasn't in a church. 
The, the hate's going to increase. Jesus said you will be hated by all people. He didn't say you will be hated by all people except for those folks in the United States because they're, they're pretty good. He said you'll be hated by all people for my name's sake. Eventually it will get here. That's the bitterness. And it's important that we take this at face value because if I tell you, if you come to Jesus, if you listen to Jesus, if you obey Jesus, everything's going to be better instantly. Y'all, I have no scriptural authority to promise you that every bad thing in your life is going to go away because you come to Jesus. I'm not going to promise you that. I'm not going to promise you that Jesus is going to undo the temporal consequences of previous sin. What I am going to promise you is that Jesus is faithful to be with you, to forgive you, and to adopt you into his family. That, that, that he is faithful to do that. That's the sweet part. The bitter part is what goes on here. <coughs> to those who accept the message of the gospel, y'all, it's sweet behind, beyond all comprehension. Y'all, isn't it good to know that your sins are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ? Isn't it good to know that Jesus is alive and He listens to us when we pray? Isn't it good to know that you can look all you want in the Holy Land and you are never going to find the body of Jesus of Nazareth? Isn't it good to know that? Isn't it good to know that no matter what someone does to the body, they cannot do a thing to my soul? Isn't that good to know? Y'all, that's sweet. That's good. Are you a Christian? The gospel should be sweet to you. When you get up to church, when you get up to go to church, y'all, there is no poorer witness for Jesus than getting up going, I don't want to go. I don't want to be there. It's just, I just, I'm, those, those people get on my nerves. I won't sing the same songs again. I just, I would rather lay in my bed and watch Bonanza reruns. Listen to so and so. I just I don't want to go. Y'all. You get to come here because Jesus died for you. You get to come here because you've been redeemed. You get to come here and you get to y'all, there's a sign-up sheet for available positions of service in this church. On the back table, right back there. I've got to serve that God who went and died for me again this year. This is ridiculous. I can't wait till I can just die and go be with the God that I don't want to serve while I'm here. Y'all, the gospel is sweet. It's good. It should make us happy. It should give you joy and peace in your heart, even when it corrects you. That's the sweet. But to those who reject the message of the gospel, it carries with it the aroma of death itself. Well, Josh, that seems a little strong. No, 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. How? Through the preaching of His Word. 
For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. If you are in the Word, if you assimilate the Word, if you take it, it becomes part of you, and you begin to live it out, you do what the Bible calls as emit the aroma of Christ. That that is what you do when you walk into a place. You emit the aroma of Christ through your life. That you give off the scent of heaven. That that's what should be occurring. Now what does that scent do? To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. Do you remember how the demons responded when Jesus showed up somewhere? They fell and screamed and cried out to Him not to torment them and begged Him to send, their, send them somewhere else. If you find yourself having the same response whenever the gospel is preached as the demons did when Jesus showed up, that should give you pause. Why do you hate church? Why do you hate preaching? Why do you hate music? And, and I'm, I don't know if I'm talking to anybody. I hope to God right now I'm not. I hope there's nobody under the sound of my voice that has that gut reaction when they hear the gospel preached. Because if you do, if you share a response to Jesus with the demons, you probably relate to Him the same way as a rebel who is outside of His grace. The gospel is bitter to you if you are perishing. It is the scent of death leading to death. Same thing if you're someone who says, well, I'm not a Christian because I find that book to be offensive. You've rejected Christ. Now, what about you who have accepted the gospel and it is joy to you, it is sweet to you, it is life to you, it is life to you, and you've been so excited that I know a God who loves me and who came to this earth to save me, and one day you have the realization that He didn't just come to save you, He came to save your family, your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your, your sons, your daughters, your grandkids, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your co-workers, your friends. It just dawned on you one day that they need to know this Jesus too, and you go share the gospel with them and they tell you kindly to take a hike. How does that feel? Bitter? Sweet in your mouth, but bitter when nobody else wants to hear it. Do you know that, that Paul had the exact same response in 2 Corinthians 2? Look at verse 16. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Do you think that it did not grieve Paul? to preach the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over. And he didn't just get run out of town. He got beat. He got imprisoned. He got shipwrecked. He got starved. He got put on kangaroo court more times than any of us have seen a kangaroo on Discovery Channel. I mean, he just lived a life of mistreatment because people didn't want to hear what he had to say about Jesus. And it, he was not, y'all, Paul was not a superman. 
It's not like the bullets bounced off of his chest and he just strolled through Metropolis okay. It hurt him. It caused him pain. It grieved him. Look at Romans 9, 1-3. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Listen to how badly Paul hurt wanting his brethren to come to Christ. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. That Paul wanted them to come to Jesus so badly that he said, if I could do it, I would trade my own salvation for theirs. I would go to hell so that they didn't have to. That's how badly I want them to know Christ. Now Paul couldn't do that. That's not a deal that Paul can make. But that should tell you a little bit of the pain that he endured for people not hearing him. Y'all, the gospel is sweet by itself, but it is bitter whenever you reject it, it's the aroma of death to you, or there's a bitterness that sets in, a sadness, a pain that sets in when you share the gospel over and over and over again. And it just doesn't seem to take. Stapleton, have you ever been discouraged by that? Have you ever felt like you've gone to the same people over and over and over and over and over and over and over? Do you get the idea? And they don't want to listen, do they? And eventually it just seems like the bitterness is too much and you say with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? I don't see any fruit for my labor. I don't see any work. I don't see anything coming out of this. Why why, why am I even keep going? Why don't I just hang it up and call it quits? (coughs) There's only 318 of us here anyway. I've been to all of them. I would just have to go back over and over and over. Jesus, can't you just send somebody else here who will do it? And Jesus' response is, No, unto them I shall send you. Y'all, Jesus gave us the gospel. He gave us the gospel in Stapleton. We don't exist for us, we exist for them. The gospel, God wants us to enjoy and endure all of it. Enjoy the sweetness of the gospel yourself. Yes, revel in it. But endure the bitterness, enjoy the, endure the sadness when people don't listen. Keep trucking. Keep going. Which leads us to verse 11. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. This prophecy was the content of the book that John ate. But this prophecy, the reason it's prophecy is it's, it's the Word of God. So I can take and apply the, what John was commanded to do with this little book. I can take and apply it to this big book. That God required John to go proclaim a difficult message to a world that would have two wildly different reactions to his message. On the one hand, you've got those to whom it's sweet. They're strengthened by it. They're encouraged by it. And on the other hand, you've got those to whom it is bitter. And y'all, the bitterness is exhausting. 
when you share the gospel with somebody and, they, and, and, and they're, they're on it. I mean, there's somebody in this church who went and shared the gospel with somebody and they're like, oh yeah, I gave my life to Christ a few weeks ago. This is, yeah, I'm already there. That's wonderful, isn't it? That's easy. That's good. That, make, that energizes you. But when you go and knock on somebody's door, you go, oh, well, you're one of them church people. Okay, come in. Well, clearly you don't want me here. I'm just in here because you feel like you have to. It'd be really easy to hang it up. It seems easier the longer you try it, doesn't it? To just hang it up. The more you try, the more you seemingly fail, the easier it is to hang up. What if you had been doing this for, I don't know, 70 years? What if you had been preaching the gospel for 70-odd years? You'd been imprisoned. You'd been beat. And finally, they just had enough of you, and they put you on this little island called Patmos where you wouldn't bother anybody. You found yourself in your 90s. That's John. He was likely a teenager whenever he was one of the twelve. By the way. A teenager. Been following Jesus for probably 70 years at this point. Jesus, Lord, don't I get to retire? Can I just mail this book to the seven churches? No, John. You're not done yet. You're going to prophesy one more time. You must prophesy one more time. And the rest of John's vision, y'all, as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation, it's not going to make it any easier that you're going to see what his prophecy is. Consider this, that John saw. John saw the eternal salvation of those who place their faith in Christ. You really want your mind blown? Consider that John would have seen both the judgment of those who are in Christ and the judgment of those who are not in Christ. Consider, even though he may not have recognized you, John saw in the future you standing before Christ. He saw that. I want to see that. Can you write that down, John? Can you tell me what it was like when I stood in front of Jesus and you saw that? Yes, but John didn't write that down. But, but consider this too, that John also saw people being condemned to hell. John saw it. I guarantee you, John heard it. John saw the tears. John heard the begging. I'm sure John heard Jesus at some point say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Would that be hard to share with somebody? Please listen to me. I'm begging you. I see what, I've seen what happens to you if you reject this. Please, I'm begging you. Don't go there. 
I've seen the lake of fire. I've seen hell. I've seen the screams of torment and the smoke of their torment rising before the Lord and His angels day and night for all eternity with no end where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. I've seen it. I've heard it. I've smelled it. Please don't go there. Go away, John. We're tired of you. John, you've got to prophesy one more time. You've got to do it. That God intends us not to just take it and assimilate it, but He intends us to speak it. To say it. But, but Josh, if I say that, my kids won't want to have anything to do with me. They'll get mad. They'll leave. My coworkers won't invite me to lunch anymore. So-and-so won't talk to me anymore. They won't have anything to do with me anymore. Y'all listen, it's better to suffer for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. I got a little two-year-old at the house. I do not... I want you to imagine a giant box of soap right here. I don't understand when parents and grandparents say, well, I just want my kids to make their own choice on religion. I don't want to push them. I don't want to influence them. That's their decision. They have to make it. I've got a little two-year-old at the house. If I allow her to make her own decisions on what she wanted to do, she would reach up and pull my cast iron skillet, pull a hot grief down on top of herself because she wants to play with what daddy is using. Am I supposed to stand back and let her reach up and take what she wants because it's her decision? No. Because that's, that's child abuse. 30 years defects worker. That's child abuse, isn't it? Yes. I used to not like being disciplined. I'd tell my mom I'm going to call defects. She said, baby child, I'm right here. <laughs> Who do you think they're going to put you through to? If I let Margaret make her own decision, she would kill herself. Because she doesn't know. She thinks she does. Lord, she thinks she's got everything in the world figured out. Me and Emily are just slow. <laughs> that we haven't figured it out yet. She has no clue that half the things she wants to play with if she was unsupervised would end her. If you would not let your child pull down a cast iron skillet of hot grease on them because they want to, why would you subject them to the likelihood of an eternal damnation in hell because you don't want to influence their religious choice? Well, they're not going to like me. If them in hell is, is worth them liking you for, you know, 40 years on this earth, that's you. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And we're not going to serve anything else. Amen. Notice I said anything. I didn't say just anybody. I said anything. And that means travel ball and gymnastics and cheerleading and three or four weeks at the beach. I'm meddling now. i got to stop. God intends us to share all of His Word, regardless of the response to it. Isaiah chapter 6, 
You remember Isaiah chapter 6? He sees the train, the, the train of the Lord filling His temple. And he says, Woe to me, I'm, a, I'm an unclean man. With, I have unclean lips and I'm from a people of unclean lips. And the angel reaches into the altar and pulls out the coal and touches it to his lips and says, Now you've been made clean. And he hears the voice of God booming throughout heaven and says, Whom shall I send? And Elijah, and, and Elijah, and Isaiah utters the famous words, What? Here am I, send me. And that's where we stop reading. That's a great passage. It should be. Anybody that's ever been sent by God, whether it's across the street or across the world, they should hear the cry of Isaiah saying, send me, send me. Let me be the vehicle for your words. I want to serve you. So he pops off his mouth and says, here am I, send me. And then God opens his mouth and says, okay, here's what what I'm going to go tell you. And it's not that happy of a message. And Isaiah kind of stops for a minute and he says, How long do you want me to say this, Lord? How long, O Lord? Verse 11, And he, God, answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are in the midst of the land. But yet a tent will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it's cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. When do we stop preaching the gospel to Stapleton? When there's nobody left here to hear it. That's when we stop. When did you stop preaching the gospel to that person who's tired of you talking to them about Jesus? If they block you on your cell phone, send them a card. You won't leave me alone. No, I won't leave you to hell. You're going to have to push me away, not the other way around. God intends us to share His Word. All of it. And it can be bitter. It can be hard. But y'all, we have got a fantastic message to share.